Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, and be dependent on no one. Um, Well, good morning uh, to you again. Thanks to Marco for um, taking us through things so far, and a big welcome to you. Hope you had a good um, time enjoying sun, and uh, perhaps some holiday recently. And I guess you will go back to uh, more of, of normal life tomorrow, whether that be um, at school or work or uh, looking after the family um, in your community. And I, I would imagine all of us at some time uh, get asked that question on a Monday, um, particularly after a weekend of sun where people expect you to have got up to all sorts of exciting things and they will say, what did you do at the weekend? Does that happen to you? And you have that kind of feeling, okay, what, how, how do I tackle this? Should I just talk about Saturday? Or should I mention what I did on Sunday too? Uh, so, you know, perhaps with a deep breath, you say, I did this and that on Saturday, I had a barbecue and uh, went to church on Sunday. And then you hold your breath because you're not sure what's coming next. Which way is this going to go? Are they going to ignore that? Or are they going to pick me up on it? Are they going to ask me something difficult about why I go to church or what I do there? And so perhaps the question goes next, okay, church, all right, what, what kind of church do you go to and, and, and what do you do there? Again, you have to, your, your mind is working in overdrive, isn't it? How, how am I going to answer that? What's the, what's the most helpful thing that I can say? I want to be brave, I want to be courageous, um, but, but, but I don't quite know what to, what to say here. Um, so you mumbled something, you know, we, we sang, we... Uh, we, we, we pray, we're just a, a normal church really, there was, a, there was a talk from the Bible and then we had some coffee um, and then you kind of think, okay, is that, is that the end of the conversation, is there something else coming next, where's it going to go and then they say, oh, a, t- a talk from the Bible, you, you mean a sermon and you say, yeah, a sermon and then they say, well, what, what was that about and if that happens to you tomorrow morning you might well have to decide whether you're going to mention the, the holy word and how that's going to go down. You might think, am I going to have to talk about sexual immorality and how's that going to go down? I don't know whether any of you will have a conversation like that tomorrow. Hopefully you will get the chance to tell people something about what you do at church at, at, at the weekend. Um, but how would it feel to you to tell people that at church you were talking about holiness. 
it doesn't feel like the trendiest of topics, does it? You know, if, if we're hoping that our friends might talk to us like that and then say, oh, could I come along too, please? It doesn't feel like they're going to respond like that if we say that they'll hear all about holiness. You know, maybe if it was something about, um, about politics or the environment or how to deal with uh, stressful lives or anxiety or how to be a better parent or how to feel more fulfilled in your lives or, or any number of very other practical and important concerns like that, perhaps that would feel easier to, to describe and to, and to not be embarrassed about. But, but holiness... What do we make of that? Never mind just talking about holiness to other people. What do we think about it for ourselves? Does holiness excite us? Or is it a bit like maths at school or doing the washing at home? Necessary but dull and a bit of a chore. Or is it just for extra keen Christians? Or people who've forgotten how to have fun? Well, I don't know what's going on in your mind as you consider the idea of being called to a life of holiness, but I don't have a better way of persuading you to take it seriously than by rereading a couple of the verses from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me read verse 7 and 8. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I guess when we read those words or or hear them, it's a bit like a a cardiac MRI scanner revealing exactly what's going on in our hearts because we either choose to hear God as God and choose to, to, to draw near to him, to lean into him, to seek to obey him with his help, or in one way or another we rebel against those words and choose to disregard them, choose to disregard him. So we're going to explore this issue of holiness further today. We won't say all that there is to be said about it, uh, but we'll see what Paul uh, talks about in this letter to the Thessalonians here. Just a small recap first of what's going on in the letter. If you've been here um, in the previous weeks in the series, you uh, will remember hopefully that Thessalonica is a city uh, in in modern-day northern Greece. Back in Bible times, the region was called Macedonia. And the Apostle Paul and a couple of his friends had been there for about a month telling people about Jesus, and many people had heard what they said, recognized it as the Word of God, and believed what they said, and a church had started. And about six months later, Paul is writing back to them to encourage them. They're doing well. Keep going. And he has spent three chapters up to now telling them that they're doing well and encouraging them in that. Now, in chapter 4, he's getting on to some more specific and practical instructions. When he says in 4 verse 1 there, finally, it's not like one of those bad preachers who says, and finally, and then goes on for another 20 minutes. It's more a sense of, and now on to the rest of what I have to say. Uh, So, finally, then, brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. It's interesting, isn't it, Um, how encouraging Paul continues to be? It's interesting, too, that there are various things that he's going to want to correct them about, but he's not one of those people who gets straight to the negatives. He's got three chapters of positives first, and that might be a small lesson 
just by way of a short aside to us parents and us teachers, to, to all of us, isn't it good to encourage and see the good first before you pick out the negatives? But Paul says, do you know what, you, you're doing great, guys, but, but do it more and more. The same phrase is there later on in verse 10 as well. I guess it's a warning against, against Christian cruise control. You never take the foot off the accelerator in the Christian life. If a Christian w- w- was an aeroplane, the plane is always climbing, climbing, climbing. It never reaches cruising altitude and switches on to autopilot. If a Christian was a bicycle, you would never freewheel it. Do so more and more. That's just worth reflecting on in itself, isn't it? I wonder as you look at your Christian life, is it, would you be able to describe it as a life of doing so more and more? Or has there been a bit of taking the foot off the gas in your Christian life too? I was uh, challenged and struck again this week uh, about that kind of idea when I took um, my girls to uh, the Buzz, which is a, a Christian camp for 8 to 11s. And just seeing the camp leaders and dorm leaders at events like that, I know many of you have been to them either as, uh, as leaders yourself or as, as young people going, but the leaders are Christians of all ages, from their 20s up to their 60s, giving up a beautiful, sunny half-term week, pouring their energy and time into these 8 to 11-year-olds. I was grateful to those guys for not taking their foot off the gas, at least in that way, and, and challenged as I thought, would, would I be willing to, to do that? Do so more and more. And of course, that will be expressed in all sorts of different ways, not just about being camp leaders. And the way that Paul urges these Christians to walk and please God more and more is, verse 3, to press on in sanctification or holiness, which verse 3 says is, God's will for us. That is God's plan for your life. God's desire for your life is that you would be sanctified, that you would be holy. Just as I say those words, that is God's plan for your life. Again, there's a response in us to that, isn't there? And we'll come back to this later. And the response is probably going one of two ways. It's like, oh, that sounds interesting, what God wants for my life. Is that what those words do to you? God's plan for your life, God's desire for your life is, do you want to hear that? Or is there a sense of you in which, do you know what, this sounds like it's probably not going to be the kind of stuff I care about or I'm interested in. I'm just going to shut down. But God's will for us is our sanctification. And Paul focuses first on sexual immorality. And so we'll look first at holiness expressed in sexual purity. Let's read verses 3 to 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. It's very clear, isn't it? Um, It's very black and white, abstain, Paul says. Um, If you don't know what the word abstain means, it means avoid it altogether, have nothing to do with it, do not go there. The language of abstinence makes us think of alcohol, 
And most of us here probably take the view that nowhere in the Bible does it say that, we, that, that drinking alcohol in moderation is wrong. It's a wisdom call as to whether we drink alcohol and if we do, how much. But it is not a wisdom call on how much sexual immorality we take part in. We are to abstain from it. Goodness knows that is hard in this world, isn't it? Because you cannot live a moment or walk down the street or have many conversations with, uh, with people or uh, watch anything on a screen anywhere which is going to fill your mind with pure things when it comes to uh, the arena of sexual conduct. Abstain from sexual immorality. It's hard. Just to be clear on what that actually means, it means any sexual activity that is not between a married man and the woman he is married to or a married woman and the man she is married to. And that, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, includes sexual activity that takes place in our minds as well. I was following a discussion on Twitter yesterday about uh, a case of sexual immorality that's in the news at the moment, and there was a lone Christian voice in the discussion that was going on that was pointing out in, in clear but gentle terms the various ways in which sexual immorality had been displayed. And one of the replies to this Christian person typified the world that we live in. Uh, in mocking tones, they said, uh, David, I've got the 1800s on the phone for you here. Our world does not respect Christian ethics when it comes to sex. Uh, they don't like them, they don't respect them, they do not want to listen to them, and they will mock and perhaps our biggest challenge today as Christians is to be distinctive in this area. So how are you doing with sexual immorality? Perhaps these few simple words that Paul writes here are just hard to hear because they bring back memories from the past which are shameful to you, uh, perhaps the not-so-distant past. Um, it's been great already that we have thought about forgiveness about grace, about the blood of Christ shed on the cross. And please know that if you are a believer, the blood of Christ on the cross shed for you is sufficient to cover those sins. They are dealt with. The guilt of those sins is taken away from you as far as the east is from the west. There is no condemnation for your past. But Paul would say, press on with your future press on into more and more sexual purity. Perhaps you're just conscious, not so much of, of, of uh, big mistakes that keep you awake at night, but just kind of dabbling with sexual immorality. You know, there are things that go around on the, on the playground with people showing you stuff on the phone, there's some slip-ups on the internet, there's thoughts and images which come into your mind, perhaps, that you dwell on more than you should the occasional wandering, or what, what would it be like to, to go there? So perhaps you wouldn't say that you're free of sexual immorality, but you've found ways to minimize it, to not feel like it's a big problem, or to make it somehow respectable or acceptable. Please hear Paul's call to abstain from it. Avoid it completely. And hear his solemn warning in verse 6 there that the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. 
I think those words are really, really hard to say, let alone consider. The Lord is an avenger. Even if the brother or sister who you wrong with your sexual immorality never finds out about it, even if you manage to justify your behavior on the grounds that you can't see that it had done anyone any harm, the Lord knows the harm that all sexual immorality has on all involved. And he is an, and he is an avenger. Maybe you feel like this is an area you're doing well in. Uh, you're uh, happily married and faithful. That is to be celebrated and rejoiced in, isn't it? That is great. Well, do so more and more. Paul would ask you and urge you to not be complacent, but to do so more and more. Don't take your foot off the, grass, or off the gas. But sexual immorality is not the only area that Paul is interested in when it comes to holiness. So secondly, we're going to look at, from verses 9 to 12, holiness expressed in brotherly love. I guess one of the reasons that holiness gets a bad press is because people tend to think that it's all about the kind of things we've been talking about so far. We see it in very narrow terms. It's a list of do's and don'ts, most of which sound like they're just out to spoil people's fun. Um, But this next section shows us that it's much broader than that. And what Paul says is not separate from what has come before. Each of these, uh, um, this whole section starts with the language of walking in verse 1 and ends with it in verse 12. Each contains this urge to do more and more. And each of them is an unpacking of the prayer that Paul prayed at the end of chapter 3, which I'll I'll read now just to uh, remind us uh, that when Paul's talking about holiness, he's also talking uh, about about love. May the Lord, verse 12 of chapter 3, make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. See the connection there between holiness and love? They're inseparable. We express brotherly love in holy living, and we express holy living in brotherly love. The way in which the Lord grows holiness in our lives is by growing love in our lives. Love for one another and for all. So let's begin to see that this idea of holiness is, a, is an altogether more positive one than sometimes the impression might be given of. It's something to rejoice in, the idea that we might love one another in this abundant way. And again, the Thessalonians are doing brilliantly here. Verse 10. Uh, they're doing brilliantly. That is indeed what you're already doing. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And again, Paul has some specific instructions for them. It seems that some of the Christians there had a tendency to spend more time and energy being busybodies at the expense of being able to support themselves financially. This was risking them a bad reputation before outsiders, as verse um, uh, 11 and 12 say. And it was meaning that they were becoming a burden on other Christians too. And so Paul corrects them with three brief but related instructions. Firstly, he says, live quietly. Aspire to live quietly, verse 11 there. Don't be concerned, Paul says, about making a splash in in the swimming pool of life. It's okay just to get your head down and live under the radar, aiming to please God. That's all you're worried about. Aspire for a quiet life that looks and sounds like that. That's going to please God. Similarly, mind your own affairs. You, You don't always have to know what's going on. 
even if the, the conversations at the school gate or in the office uh, break room or the stuff that you uh, see on the internet, even if all of, all of that makes it feel like there's an awful lot going on out there and everyone else seems to want to know about it, and so maybe I should want to know about it too. Well, Paul says, just mind your own affairs. Don't get involved. And then thirdly, provide for yourself first so that you can be a blessing to others, not a burden to them. Of course, not all of us are able to work for reasons of age or health or family or circumstance. And there is a vital place for a Christian family bearing one another's burdens and supporting one another practically and financially when that's the case. But as far as you're able, Paul would say, spend your time not being busybodies in other people's affairs, but loving them by not being a burden to them and earning your own money where you can. Now, some of that, I think, feels a little bit of a foreign concept to us. I don't think many of the people that I'm looking at right now need to be told to work harder. I don't think that is the culture that we live in. Um, um, but it might be that that is what you need to hear. Um, or perhaps the challenge for us uh, here is, is to be known as a Christian community that in all its interactions is more about giving than taking. That actively and, and intensely in a, in a more and more kind of way seeks to love and build up and give to others of our time and energy and emotions rather than a community characterized by idleness and superficiality and, and petty gossip. Where, as we saw in that prayer in chapter 3, our focus is on the seriousness of living in a world that Jesus is going to return to and where we must be ready, abounding in love, so that we might be blameless in holiness. So let's move on, though, and uh, continue to think about the idea of holiness a little bit more broadly, and think about what the key to holiness is. What is the key to holiness? And at the heart of our passage, uh, uh, and this section, and this teaching on holiness, is verses 4 and 5, where Paul tells us that the key to holiness is self-control. Uh, Paul wants each one of you to know how to control uh, his or her own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, um, like they live. Self-control is the key to holiness. So in the area of uh, sexual conduct, if you want to be sexually pure, which is the example that Paul gives most of all, that's going to involve knowing how to control every part of your body, which includes physical parts of your body, including the obvious ones, but also including your fingertips, which touch the keyboard, and your eyes, which see things and linger on them, and your mind, which imagines and dwells upon them. We must know how to control our bodies. If you want to be sanctified in other ways, you need to control every other part of you too. And we uh, were with some friends this week, and they were talking about uh, some of the conversations they have with their teenage son. And they were describing uh, uh, a little bit how he struggled to control his emotions. And they used the phrase which stuck with me, emotional continence. 
being able to keep your emotions inside. Uh, not because that's what British people do, but so that emotions, when they come out, they come out in a controlled fashion. They don't uncontrollably just spill out into physical anger or verbal tongue lashings or rude gestures or manipulative tears or, or whatever unhelpful way our emotions are displayed. Which does not mean it's never wrong uh, to, uh, to speak uh, firmly and clearly to people. It does not mean it's wrong to cry. It does not mean it's wrong to show emotion, but we are to control it. Emotional continence. So that might be where we need to learn self-control. We might need to learn self-control of our appetite. When your brain tells you that you're hungry, that does not mean that you have to eat. Your parents might say you need to wait till tea time, and if they do, you can learn to control that and wait till tea time. Or it might be a case of not eating any more at all that day. We're not controlled by our feelings and our emotions and our desires. We've learned self-control of our appetite. Maybe we need to learn control of the way we use our phones or our TV remotes. Maybe we need to learn control over when we tap our credit card. Maybe we need to learn to control our rage at the injustice of a refereeing decision. Whatever it is, holiness is about being in control of yourself rather than being controlled by yourself. That's the contrast, isn't it, in verse, uh, in verse um, 5 there, in, in, in verse yeah, 4 and 5. Self-control or, like the Gentiles live, controlled just by their passions and lusts. Just doing whatever your body tells you you want to do. My body's telling me I need something, so I'm going to get it. My body's telling me I want something, so I'm going to get it. The evidence of our world today is that that is a self-destructive and other destructive way to live, isn't it? And we Christians must learn something better. We must know how to control our own bodies. And notice how, how honourable and good that is. Know how to control his own body in holiness and honour. When we exercise self-control like this, we are doing what is right and what is good, what is noble and honourable. It is strong, it is courageous to live like this. And we should see it in that way. But finally, and perhaps most importantly, let's look at the heart of holiness. We've talked about some areas of holiness, sexual conduct, the, the, the way we spend our time and, and, and being busybodies or, or, or working, providing for ourselves. We've talked about the key to holiness is self-control. But what about the heart of holiness? We've kind of touched on this and skirted around it a few times, but I want to end by making it really, really explicit. At the heart of all this talk of holiness is the absolutely vital sense that holiness is not a lifestyle. It is not a list of do's and don'ts that you choose to follow. No, holiness cannot be thought of without reference to the God who calls us to it. Holiness m means to be set apart for something new and different. And it's God who has set us apart for that. He is the one, verse 7, who has called us to live a different life. 
each of the verses in, in this passage, right from verse 3 all the way through to verse 9, I think, talk about God or the Lord Jesus. Everything that Paul says is framed in that, in that relationship with him. Back in chapter 1, I think it's verse 10, uh, verse 9, uh, Paul has um, talked about how being a Christian is turning away from idols to serving God. It's, it's a simple concept, isn't it? We've heard it before, but, but just consider it again. The Christian life is not having a new lifestyle, but it's having a new master. And that's why time and again Paul is saying, I'm giving you the instructions in the Lord Jesus, verse 1, and through the Lord Jesus, verse 2. It's about what God's will is, verse 3. It's about being taught by God, verse 9. And so all through this passage, the underlying question is this. Will we choose to live for and obey and please and listen to and follow God, our Lord Jesus Christ? That's the reason that the Gentiles don't know holiness and can't know holiness because, verse 5, they don't know God, but we do. And so holiness is about a life oriented to knowing him more and following him. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's knowing his will, wanting to know it better and wanting to live it out. Here's one way of putting it. Why do we obey? We obey not because it says so. We obey because he says so. We obey not because there is a moral code or a list of rules that we're signed up to. We obey because he says so. We have a master we listen to him. We long to please him. So the heart of holiness is a matter of the heart. And so the only question that really matters this morning is, do you want to please God in your heart? Is that desire there? Is that desire there? Remember that conversation we imagined you having tomorrow morning. Maybe a better way to talk about what the sermon was about today would be to talk in these terms. Yeah, uh, the preacher talked to us about holiness um, and about how holiness isn't a list of do's and don'ts, but it, it, it's about remembering that as a Christian, I've got a new boss now. He's got a new way for me to live, and I, I love him, and I want to listen to him. I want to serve him. I want to live that way. So here we have some commands, some practical instructions written by the pen of the Apostle Paul, but they are not man's words. They are the good words, the good commands of a good God who wants to teach us honorable and pure ways and prepare us for an eternity in heaven uh, with him. So how do we respond? Well, we who know and love our Lord Jesus, we hear that voice and we do not disregard these things. But with tender hearts and tender consciences, seeking his forgiveness as we repent, depending on his help, we press on more and more in the power of his spirit, in holy love for him and for one another until Jesus returns. I'm going to pray now and ask him to help us in that. So let's bow our heads and pray.
Uh, Heavenly Father, we've looked at serious things this morning. Uh, We've looked at the idea that um, sin has consequences, that you are an avenger. And the last thing we want to do, Father, is to explain them away, uh, to disregard them. Um, So we ask, Father, that you would help us to remember these clear instructions, to be conscious of them. And please, would you grow in us uh, a desire to love you, to obey you, uh, to serve you as we wait for your Son from heaven. Uh, Please, in your spirit strength, would we uh, be free from sexual immorality and full of brotherly love. Um, Please keep us blameless in holiness until Jesus returns. We ask for your help and independence upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.